Today's reading is Luke 2, verses 22 through 38. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. The word of God of the Lord. Well, this Sunday and for the next five Sundays, we're going to be doing a, a series on Sundays, uh, looking at Luke's, Luke and Acts, uh, and, and we're calling this uh, sermon series um, Elevate. And it, it actually just so happens to coincide with the Elevate campaign. Um, it's almost as if we sort of planned the two things to go together, but sometimes coincidences just, just happen, and, and that's one of those funny things. But uh, here's what I want to be abundantly clear about as, as I start this message, just so no one's afraid, no one has any fear. This is not a five-week fundraising pitch. This is not a five-week PBS drive. This is not a five-week NPR drive, okay? Not that those are bad. What? You want a mug? You Listen... We gave tote bags last year, all right? So we'll get <laughs> mugs. Not mugs, but hugs. That's what we promised this year, okay? And so, um, for, for me. And so, the focus, yes, yes, we're talking about what we're giving to, but even more important than that, and what's going to be transformative and shape us for years and years to come, is not what we're, what, what we're giving to, but it's what we're giving from. It's not about what we're giving to, it's about what we're giving from, And because I believe that through this campaign, God wants us to just understand some dimension of how elevated and exalted he is, what a great and awesome God he is. And we can point to this as an example of that. 
And he wants us to be shaped, formed into the kind of people that can, can serve him and share his message with others, his, his love, his compassion, his mercy, his justice with, with our own families, our friends, our colleagues, our community, our neighbors, the whole world. God wants to use this process to shape us into those kind of people. And I believe that through this campaign, as we seek to elevate God, God wants us to understand how we can be elevated in our own practices of discipleship, how we can walk more closely with God so that we can know God more, love God more, and serve God more with all that we have and all that we are. And you know, the, the, the Elevate campaign, it will allow us to elevate God's name and, and, and God's ministry here in real, tangible, practical, concrete ways that make a difference right away, no doubt. I mean, that's one of the beauties about it is, is you know, we're not talking about, you know, adding another, you know, few deck chairs on, on some beautiful cruise ship. You know, we see this as having a real tangible impact right away. And we get to do this. We get to, to transform the lives of people that we already know and love in our church community right away. And so that is what's so beautiful about it. But, but I believe that this process is going to have life-transforming and even church-transforming impacts on all of us who really choose to seriously and prayerfully engage with it. Not just thinking, well, okay, all right, at the end of the day, what can I give? What's my number? But instead asking, how is God going to use this process to lift me up and bring me even closer to him? Because it's not about a campaign. It's about discipleship. It's about following Jesus more closely and more faithfully. And when it comes to elevating our discipleship, I believe it all starts with worship, and worship is one of those things that we as Christians, it's sort of like, why do we worship? Well, we just sort of do it. We, we show up each and every week, and we sing some songs, we pray some prayers, we hear a passage of Scripture read, and, and Matt or myself, we talk about it for, you know, about 20, 25 minutes, and we have some bread, juice, or wine, get some coffee and donuts, go home. You know, it's just something we do each and every week, but, but it's not something that we always stop and reflect and think about why we're doing what we're doing and what we're doing and how we do it and why it's important, and really, what is this all about? We show up on Sundays, we're greeted by a warm, welcoming face. You know Blair this morning, if you came to the service? There's Blair each and every week. Wonderful to see him. He's giving you a bulletin, and you get this bulletin, and you look at it, and it's this piece of paper, and it, and it can mean a lot of different things. You can come in, and it can sort of be like a, a, a playbill. If you ever go to a play, you know, get the thing with the yellow top on the yellow banner says playbill. That's like your, you know, what the performance is going to be. Who's playing the various parts? What are the songs? What are the scenes? What are the acts? And so it's kind of like we're showing up for a play or for entertainment. It, it can sort of act like that. Or we can show up and it can kind of look like a, a meeting agenda or maybe a checklist, right? We show up and, and as we'll get through this stuff sort of as fast, as quick as we can. I mean, not too quick. We don't want to be disrespectful, but let's sort of check all these boxes off. And then we can go get on with the rest of our day and our lives, go cheer for the Vikings, you know, go out for brunch, whatever it is that we want to do after it. But we know that that's not what God wants for us from worship. God doesn't want us to be an audience in worship, sitting back, detached, judging what's taking place. God doesn't want us to be consumers of worship, passively receiving entertainment. And he doesn't want to be us to just be here out of some mere obligation or sense of duty with this kind of, all right, hurry up, let's get this thing over with kind of thing. 
couple years ago as a congregation, we watched this documentary um, called When God Left the Building. And one of my favorite moments in this, it's about this, really this church that's struggling, it's in conflict, and there's kind of this hapless pastor uh, who there's sort of a rebellion led against him by uh, some of the old elders of the church. And and it's really a sad story about uh, people just completely missing the point of what church is about and what worship is all about. And this one elder who's kind of leading the takeover of the church is criticizing the pastor in this documentary, and he goes, he goes, you know, we show up to church and it's the worship hour. And he says, the operative word in that phrase is hour. <laughs> now, the pastor was not doing the best job of like having coherent thoughts expressed in a def- defined amount of time. I will grant him that. But the idea that you would show up to worship and say the operative word is hour shows me that someone has missed the point. And if we don't always say it sometimes, that can kind of creep into our thinking as well. And so if you were hoping a worship hour today, folks, you'll get a worship hour with plus bonus 10 minutes today, by the way. So be excited, all right, and shape your expectations that way for the rest of, of, of the service. But instead of, you know, looking at the bulletin as a playbill or a checklist or sort of, you know, something to doodle on, but please do take notes, um, let's look at it instead as this is kind of an outline or a script, that worship is how God trains us to be a, a mobile improv, improv troupe out there in the world acting out what it means to be his people the other 167 hours of the week that we are not here in this building. Unless you're me or Matt, we spend a lot more hours of the week in this building than you do. But I think it's good that we are the counter examples of that because it's up to you all to serve Jesus out in the community. And so it's a script so we can act out who God wants us to be in the world when we're not in worship. And so let me say that again, that worship is the place where we meet God, where we learn God's story, and and we learn sort of the lines and the outlines and rehearse the kind of words and actions that we need to live out God's purposes out there in the real world. And so then... When we're spending this hour together, it's very, very important because, you know, what we worship and how we worship, it profoundly shapes how we will live. And so when we we get it wrong, when we worship the wrong things in the wrong way, it will ultimately destroy us, deform us. And I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that, but as LeVar Burton used to say on Reading Rainbow, you don't have to take my word for it. The late great author, David Foster Wallace, who was not a Christian, gave what is a classic uh, commencement address to the students at, at Kenyon College a couple years before he tragically took his own life in 2005. And it's really prophetic words that he spoke that day at that college. It turned into a book called um, uh, This is Water. It's this beautiful collection of his essays, and I'm going to quote him at length here because I think he hits at a profound truth in a profound way with words that I can't improve on. And he says this to these students, you know, and keep in mind, he's speaking to kids graduating from college in 2005. These are, you know, 22, 23, 24, depending on how many years you've stayed in school, 26 maybe, year old kids, depending on what kind of plan you're on. My own dad did like the six, seven-year plan, but that's good more seasoning and savor to get into it, you know? And so these are kids in their early 20s. They're excited to move on with the rest of their lives, to get out there and sort of stake their claim in the real world. And David Foster Wallace says this to them. This is him really cluing them in on what it means to live an adult life. He says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, 
there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some invaluable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Worship money and things, if they are where you tap into real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Worship being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, always a fraud on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are the default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that is what you are doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our own own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. That kind of freedom has much to recommend it, but of course there are all different kinds of freedom. The kind that is most precious you will not hear much talk about in the great outside world of wanting and achieving. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, unsexy ways every day. That will preach. That will preach when we think about what we worship and how We worship. And so, friends, I hope you can see now that that worship matters, how we worship matters, what we worship matters, why we worship matters. Because God wants to give us the kind of freedom that David Foster Wallace is talking about here. And though he was no Christian on that day in 2005 at Kenyon College, he was not far from the kingdom. He wants us to break free, God does, from those default settings that the Christian tradition has dubbed the world or the flesh or the devil and instead be people living with our settings on the kingdom and the spirit so that we can be able to truly care about other people and sacrifice for them every day in myriad, petty, unsexy ways. And David Foster Wallace, he was right that, that, that what we worship shapes what we love. And one Christian philosopher said that we are what we love. We become what we love. And so proper worship, it shapes us into a proper love of God, which leads us into right ways of living for him in this world. 
It gives us not strict rules for life, but the kind of imagination that we need to live rightly. Worship is about captivating and capturing our imagination. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who was the author of The Little Prince, said this. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. I love that. It's about imagination. It's not saying, hey, aren't you, let's go get some, you know, wrenches and hammers and break open a wall and put in an elevator. It's not about that. Who here, you know, knows how to get a faucet up and running and can set a toilet on a wax ring? You know that. Let's go. Those are valuable things, and we'll be asking for them later. (laughs) Don't worry. Don't worry. But right now, it's not about that. It's about this vision for something bigger, and God wants to captivate our imaginations and to shape them, to long for the things he longs for, to dream for the things he dreams for, to hope for the things that he hopes for, to desire the things that God desires I mean, think about why Jesus was known for teaching in parables. The kingdom of God is like. He's engaging people's imaginations to dream of a different kind of world and a different kind of God. Right? So in order for Elevate to be successful, we don't just need an elevator or bathrooms or a hospitality kitchenette. We need a kingdom vision for a gospel that is for everyone and wants to provide everyone with a dignified welcome in Jesus' name. Everyone who come, God brings into our midst. And, and that kind of worship will provide us the vision and imagination that we see from our passage this morning. So I want to look at this particular scripture from a couple, couple different angles. The, 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 the how do we worship based on this passage and why do we worship based on what we see in this passage. And there's a lot going on here. I'm going to throw several things at you in a short amount of time, but it's not about turning on the fire hose and spraying and see if you can remember it. Right? A good sermon, is, it makes an impression. It's not about you being able to answer the test afterwards. What did I talk about? But I hope this makes an impression on your imagination when it comes to worship, the how and the why of it. And this passage is one, the Song of Simeon. It's one that's played a central role in, in Christian daily prayer and worship throughout the century. So there's a lot here to learn that we can learn from Simeon, that we can learn from Anna, that we can learn from Luke here in chapter 2. And so the first part about how, how we worship, what does this teach us about how we worship, is that our worship is a response to what God has done. Worship happens in this instance. We're in Luke 2, verse 22, starting right before this, the Christmas story. Right before that, the angel announces to, to Mary that she's going to conceive and bear a child. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. And, and so all of this is happening in the temple because of the great things that God has already done in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so worship is always our response to God's initiative. You know, we don't show up and say, God, we show up here. We're inviting you to join us in this place. No, 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 no. God sets the table. God invites us. We only show up because of what God has already done. And so worship starts with God's call, which invites our response. And this is so essential to keep in mind, that our job isn't to get God to support what we want to do. What we need to do is see what God is doing right now and join him in that. That's the first point that we learn about how we worship, response to God. The second point, this is the Sunday school point, but it's true. 
Our worship is centered on Jesus. Now, this might seem obvious, but just because something is obvious doesn't mean it's not true. doesn't mean it's not worth repeating and restating and relearning over and over and over again. Just because Stephen Curry is the best three-point shooter in the history of the NBA doesn't mean he doesn't keep practicing his shot. doesn't mean he doesn't keep his focus on his fundamentals. And so just because we've heard it before that it's all about Jesus, it's centered on Jesus, that's true. We keep that at the center of our consciousness because when we lose that, we lose everything. It's all about Jesus. Why does Simeon sing? Because he sees Jesus. Why does Anna give thanks to God and and then start talking to everyone about Jesus? Well, because she saw him that day in the temple. Why do we do all the things that we do here in worship today? Because we've seen Jesus, and the only thing we can do after we've really seen him is to praise him, thank him, adore him, cry out to him, and share him with others. And if you haven't seen Jesus in that way, we, we worship how we worship because we want you to have the chance to see him the same way we do. So worship is our response to what God has done. It's centered on Jesus. And the next aspect of how we worship is that true worship is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is, is everywhere permeating this passage. Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon and that it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And, and it says that he came into the temple in the Spirit. The Spirit is everywhere in this passage. And so true worship is born of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. That's the difference between, you know, worship is just going through the motions or dead rituals or, or receiving entertainment. Worship that's vital, that's faithful, that's life-giving has the Spirit of God in our hearts and in our midst. And so how we worship in, in an elevated way, then, is it's a response to God. It's centered on Jesus, and it's in the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, true worship ha- has a Trinitarian shape. It's a reflection of who God is and how God operates. And so elevated worship, it makes us attentive to what God is doing in the world. It it keeps us on the lookout for where Jesus is in it, and it reminds us of our dependence on the Holy Spirit for any of our efforts to bear any fruit worthy of the kingdom at all. But what else can we learn from this passage about how we worship? The next thing is that it's rooted in Scripture. Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple Luke tells us, in in accordance with the law of Moses. In other words, they're going to worship, their acts of worship that they offer are rooted in Scripture. Simeon, we're told, is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Where did that hope, that expectation come from? Scripture. The prophets like Isaiah saying that God would renew and restore his people and all things, crying out, comfort, oh comfort, my people. And Simeon's song itself, it's full of echoes of Scripture. He declares that Jesus is a light of revelation for the Gentiles a refrain that's found in who else but Isaiah time and again, that that when God restores his people, it's not just good news for them, it's good news for the whole world. So our worship, it's God-focused. It's scripturally rooted. There's like 20 other things I could say about what this teaches about worship. I won't do it, but I'll focus on just one more about the hows of worship in this passage. And the aspect is this, that, that, that true worship involves sacrifice. Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple to offer the proper sacrifice according to the law. 
And though we're no longer under the law, we're no longer offering animal or food sacrifices to God, the New Testament talks about worship as sacrifice and that, 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 that what's being offered is us. We are living sacrifices. And so sacrifice is still essential to worship. And so worship teaches us to sacrifice, to give something up of our own, our comfort, our preferences, our resources, our pleasure for something even greater, namely God's glory. And that's what Elevate is all about, discerning how God is calling us to sacrifice for something great as an act of worship that will ultimately bring glory to his name. And so worshiping the right way trains us how to do that, to do what David Foster Wallace called being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty, unsexy ways every day. And those sacrifices, those little sacrifices that we will make, sometimes those big sacrifices that we will make, they are going to add up in immeasurable ways. When I think about, you know, geez, what would it look like that for my own family to say, wow, when John and Katie come to church with Wendell and they push him in to say, we were a part of when we see people going down into the basement to be helped with their recovery or their needs with food or nutrition or the sense of belonging, be like, our sacrifices, God used those to add up to something even greater. I gave up something so small for something so great. How beautiful that is. But you know, ultimately, that, that's how we worship. But why we worship, it matters just as much, I, I would say, even more than how we worship because the why gets at the purpose, the motivation behind it all. And so here's the three whys that we see for worship in our passage. The first is because of who Jesus is. We worship because of who Jesus is. When Simeon sees him, he breaks out in song because he knows that at last he has seen this thing that he's been waiting his whole long life for. He has seen the Lord's Christ. He's seen the Messiah which is a scriptural way of saying he's seen God's anointed king who's going to set the world right, going to make every sad thing come untrue. You know, it didn't originate with Kanye West to say Jesus is king. All caps, all bold, new record. It's actually really good. But, 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 but Kanye there is just echoing these words of scripture. Everything the New Testament is pointing us to is this. Jesus is king. That's why we worship him. And Simeon sings that Jesus is, is king, and then he says he's a light of revelation for the Gentiles, and so Jesus is, is this light shining in the darkness, helping us to see the truth in the darkness of the world. That when life seems empty and pointless, when, when the future is uncertain and it's full of fear, or when we're just plain confused, Jesus is the light that drives away the darkness so we can see God for who God really is. See ourselves for who we really are and see the rest of the world for what it really is. And so in a world that is so desperate for real leadership, Jesus is our true king. And when life is filled with darkness and confusion, Jesus is the light that guides us and cuts through it all. That's why we worship him, because of who he is. And then we also worship him because of what he's done. And though Jesus is just an infant here, Simeon sees what's in store. He says, my eyes have seen salvation because Jesus is the one who's going to save everyone from their sins by dying on the cross. He's the one who's going to draw all sin, all evil, all darkness on himself, let them do their worst to himself while at the same time destroying 
themselves on the cross. And in doing that, he's going to redeem us. That's what Anna is talking about. People were waiting for redemption. And Anna saw that Jesus would bring that. God let her see that. You know, people living in Jerusalem, they felt like slaves. They, they felt like they were living under oppression. They were living under Rome. They were living under a priestly and aristocratic class that had sold out. They had sold them out. But ultimately, they were living under the power of sin. And so Simeon saw, Anna saw, that Jesus was going to buy our true freedom at the cost of his own life with his precious blood. So that's why we worship him, because of what he has done for us. And so worship, it's just the proper response to Jesus. Just, just like cheering is, is the proper response to when the Vikings score a touchdown or the Gophers score a touchdown or when the Packers lose for my Wisconsin friends who are in the house. Or it's why tears are the proper response when someone we love dies or we're in a beautiful moment like a wedding or a birth of a child. That's the proper response. Or like laughter is the proper response to a good joke. That's just what you do. It is the fitting response to the phenomenon at hand. So we worship because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And I want to close with this last why for worship. The last why is we worship because worship itself is a form of evangelism, a form of sharing the good news. Anna worshiped night and day, it says in the temple, and then she saw Jesus, and at that very hour... She began to give thanks to God and to speak of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so when we gather for worship, we hear the gospel. We, we, we celebrate the gospel in order that we can go out and share the gospel with others and invite them to come and see Jesus too. That's why it's so important that we make our building accessible to all. Because we want everyone to be able to come in here and hear this message regardless of their age, regardless of their physical condition. We, we want them to come here, feel welcome. We want their family, their friends, their people to be able to come here too. And we want those same folks to, to be able to go out then into the world and share this good news with others. So our worship space is deeply, deeply, profoundly connected to our worship practices and our worship principles. But at the end of the day, what I want more than anything is that through this campaign, the name of Jesus be lifted up, to be exalted, be elevated, so that at that name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's what this is all about. Amen. Please pray with me.